episode 186, the only way to pay less for healthcare is to pay less for healthcare. David Contorno is on the podcast today. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. For the past few years, the medical cost trend hovers between 6 and 7%, and healthcare spending continues to outpace the GDP. This is not sustainable. There's only so much cost-shifting patients can bear, and there's only so much that employers can afford as healthcare costs exceed revenue growth. David Contorno is on the podcast today. We discuss these realities and what these realities mean for health systems, insurance carriers, drug companies, employers, and employees. David Contorno was the founder of Lake Norman Benefits and is now the regional practice leader and equity partner of the Hillab Group. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, David. Thanks for having me. Cost shifting, consumers are bearing more of the cost of the healthcare that we're all consuming. So people are like, wow, there's a problem. They actually blame the wrong people. You just said something very key in that. What you said is, is that people's share of the cost is going up, which is true. We've never seen as large of an increase in that as we have in the last three years. But the problem with that is that most employees, at least in the private sector, they blame the insurance companies. And while I'm certainly not a defender of the insurance companies, the problem with blaming the insurance companies is that removing the insurance companies from the picture becomes a logical solution if that's who you point the finger at. And as much as I blame them, I believe that our insurance system is a result of the problem, at least the state it is today, which is low quality coverage for high cost. It's not the cause of the problem. And so by just changing who pays, we haven't changed anything. We shouldn't be asking who pays. We should be asking why is the bill so much to begin with? And that's what so few people actually ask and focus on. If we had to think about this, knowing that the total cost of care is a function of volume times the price of the services, and also recognizing the fact that as an employer, every year, the profitability of running the business declines if the pace of healthcare is exceeding you know, faster than the growth of the business. So what is the solution here? Well, there's only one way to pay less for healthcare. You have to pay less for healthcare. And I know that sounds you know, remarkably simple and stupid, but at the end of the day, we've relinquished control of costs to these other entities. And all we need to do is take that control back. And when I say we, I mean myself and my client, but really it's my employer client that needs to take that back. I'll help them do it. I'll show them how to do it. But you need to take control of that pricing back, just like you control pricing on everything else. The challenge in healthcare is that the payer, which is the employer, and, and I really get frustrated when carriers call themselves the payer of healthcare. They are not the payer of healthcare. That's like calling my accountant the payer of my taxes. He just tells me what to pay and how much. Same with carriers. It's the employer and the employee that are the payer of healthcare, fully insured or self-insured. But it's, it's showing the, the, the payer that they have the ability, the right, 
and the responsibility, more importantly, to look at these and control the pricing. Now, obviously, you can't go to a hospital and say, you must charge less. You can't say that. What you can say, though, is I'm going to pay you less. That's one methodology that we actually deploy. But there's another methodology, and it's actually much simpler. There's wide variations in both cost and quality within our healthcare system. As a matter of fact, there's no other economic sector in which the variability of both exists to the extent. I mean, if you buy a Samsung TV or a Sony TV, the quality is pretty similar. The price is pretty similar. The features even are pretty similar. But you go get a knee surgery, the variability in those things are just huge. And so what we found, and the data on this is, is massive and extremely clear, what kind of sits in the middle between both cost and quality is frequency. If you find a, both a facility and a provider that do things very often, they tend to do them better and they tend to do them for lower cost. Uh, one example is the Cleveland Clinic with their heart program. I mean, they do some of the highest volume of heart surgeries in the country. They're renowned for being one of the best heart hospitals in the country. And their average open heart surgery cost is around 69000 versus a national average of one hundred and forty to 150000 What we do is, is set up plans where, you know, employers and employees don't like being told where to go and what to do for health care. So instead, we create two doorways, two pathways into the healthcare system. Pathway number one, do what you've always done, pay what you've always paid. And one of the sort of side impacts in a positive way of these ridiculously high out-of-pockets is that I don't need to make that any worse than it already is. It's, it doesn't need to be any more painful than it already is. But we create this other doorway into the healthcare system. And that doorway creates the best coverage that employees have seen probably since I was born in the late 70s, where you have no out-of-pocket at all. And that would mean getting your heart done at the best heart hospital in the country. Who could say no to that? And the employer has so much savings in there, they can afford to properly travel that employee there and make sure that the care is coordinated back at home once they're well enough to come back. It's really that simple. Even with my own hernia surgery, something as simple as an inguinal hernia, the price range in Charlotte, where I'm at based, was $9,000 to $47,000. And the $47,000 facility had the lowest quality metrics. But I went to a place that actively publishes their price and quality metrics on the homepage of their website called Surgery Center of Oklahoma. And their all-in cash bundle price was $3,060 with higher quality metrics than all four of the places near me. So would an employer rather pay 80% of $47,000 for a hernia and leave their employee owing almost 10 grand that most employees will never be able to pay? Or 100% of $3,000 where they're getting higher quality and absolutely no out-of-pocket. And it doesn't require traveling to the center of the country if you're on one of the coasts. There are places across the country that do this, but most people are unaware of them or they're not properly incentivized within a plan. So we just create those incentives. So I want to get back to your two doors and kind of understanding them a little bit more fully. Basically, it sounds like what your idea is to reduce regional variations in care, which are extreme. As you said, I mean, there's not only variation within a community or within traveling distance, but there's also some pretty large variations depending on where you happen to be, especially if you're more rural. Mm -hmm. So obviously, travel is not that tough these days. You just get on an airplane and go somewhere. Your thinking is that we can reduce these regional variations in care by basically just not worrying about the region. Just get on a plane and go somewhere. 
yes, absolutely true. And it not only it doesn't always involve getting on a plane. Actually, the average distance that our clients need to travel to find one of these high quality, lower cost facilities is 35 miles. It usually doesn't even involve getting on a plane, although I think we should absolutely be open to that. But, and I think you know this already, Stacy. but the variability could exist within the same facility, depending on what door you walked into through that facility. The variations is just insane and nonsensical in most cases. That's interesting because I... I've been reading a bunch of literature lately, which suggests that quality is facility wide. So that the idea that you're going to look online and get the best doctor ever is kind of a misnomer Hmm. because the same doctor practicing in two facilities could have actually very different quality ratings, that the team is what's important and the expectation of the facility behind the physician So how do you kind of reconcile those two thoughts? Yeah, there's definitely maybe even a larger determinant in the quality of the facility in terms of your outcomes, because, you know, one of the biggest problems we deal with is hospital born infections. And that obviously is going to be largely facility driven. But when you think about it, if you go in for surgery and let's say it's an overnight procedure. So let's say you're in the hospital for 36 hours. How much of that 36 hours is spent with your surgeon? Half an hour or an hour? And the entire rest of the care is being driven by everyone else, the nurses in particular. Most of the mistakes that occur, the majority of them, don't occur by the surgeon, but they occur by the facility staff. So medication errors. I mean, the the statistics are that about 90% of hospital stays have an error in them. Now, the majority of those are not noticeable. If you take two Tylenol instead of one, you're not going to be harmed. But obviously, we know that some of them have much greater consequences. But hospital communication and, and how they process the care and how that information is accessible to all the other providers, you know, the nurse that walks in when the nurse that was treating all day goes off duty, what access to information do they have? And these are questions that never get asked. And that's why it's so important to have an advocate with you, a spouse or a child or a parent who can be there sort of listening out for these things and helping bridge the gap there. But the technology exists to do this clearly. I mean, if, if we can get a package on Amazon to me the same day somehow and the logistics that go into that, there, there is a solution for this. The problem is the financial incentives don't exist for hospitals to invest in doing that. The reality is, is that the lower quality care a facility provides that typically results in either flat or higher revenue, yet the lower quality care does often mean less expenses, so therefore more profit. So the financial incentives exist, unfortunately, to not improve care or to even provide lower quality care. And I'm not suggesting that any hospital sets out to be a low quality hospital, but when you think about the maybe thousands or hundreds of thousands of little decisions that get made over the course of a year from just running the business, when each decision is looked at on its own by itself doesn't have a huge impact. But then you multiply that over thousands of decisions. That's why our healthcare system continues to get lower and lower in quality. Do you feel like from your point of view, from the lens that you're looking at healthcare delivery in this country today from, which is the lens of the employer, Do you feel like there's enough of a move away from fee-for-service at this juncture and towards value that 
the scenario that you just painted is starting to diminish or do you feel like it's still very true that the majority of healthcare delivery in this country today is still low quality care is rewarded? I think it's shifting, but it's probably not measurable yet in its shift. But I'll take that as a huge step because I think it starts to put us on the path. But, you know, value-based care, when you start to talk about that, which really means rewarding higher quality doctors with higher payment schedules, becomes very controversial. You know, how do you measure quality among a doctor? And if you have two endocrinologists treating two separate patient bases and one of them is in a low-income urban setting treating mostly Medicare and Medicaid patients, and another one is, you know, on Rodeo Drive, how do you compare the two? You're going to have lower adherence, lower access to fitness and exercise facilities and healthy foods among that lower income population. You're going to have, you know, less schooling and education among those people. So adjusting for those types of things becomes really difficult to do. And so I've sort of suggested that the only person that can determine value. There's only one person in the healthcare space that can determine that, and that's the patient. Because value is really the intersection of cost and quality. And it's different for each and every person. I may value a nice lobby with comfortable chairs and low waiting times, and other people may not care about that. And maybe I'm willing to pay a little more to have a little nicer kind of pre-visit setting. Maybe that's important to me and that's fine. But the idea I've come to realize pretty recently that a carrier or a PPO network can move to value-based payment models when they're not paying the bill, nor are they consuming the services. How are they ones to determine value? It doesn't make sense to me. I understand exactly what you're saying. But in order to realize that vision, of ensuring that those who are receiving the care are the ones to place the value on the aspects of care that they're receiving. It seems like it puts a lot of pressure on both the employer as well as the patient. Mm -hmm. Are both ready, willing, and able to accept what seems, I mean, from an employer standpoint, and I'm an employer, it sounds very frightening. Well, first of all, let's not forget the extreme pressure that both employer and employee are under with the current system. I feel like when I bring these non-traditional ideas, people all of a sudden put their current situation up on a pedestal that now I'm comparing my ideas to, to an unrealistically positive view of what they currently have. So, you know, our current system stinks. As an employer like yourself, the costs are just out of control. That's what you see the most. And then you're also a patient and you know what happens when you enter the healthcare system in both the cost and you probably have greater visibility into the quality of our system. But at the end of the day, the patient has the most to lose or gain from it. And if you think about other complex decisions like buying a house or buying a car, every single person takes on the responsibility of educating themselves. And if you think of their knowledge of automobiles, it's for the average American, it's pretty low. And as they start to get ready to buy an automobile, that knowledge peaks up, right? And they start to do research. Once they make the decision, their knowledge kind of trails off again because they're not staying on top of it. And I sort of envision something like that uh, occurring within healthcare. The 
part of the reason why it doesn't happen now is because the information is not available. It's easy to find out features on a car, price on a car, warranty, quality ratings, even consumer ratings on other owners of the car. That information is just non-existent in the healthcare space, but it's only daunting and difficult because the system wants it to be. So I don't envision you doing that in the current confines of the system, I envision us forcing the system to change in a way that it makes it easier for us to do. Much like the automobile industry was forced to do when invoice pricing was required and warranties came out. I mean, nothing improved the quality of cars in this country as when foreign car manufacturers started to put warranties on cars and the American manufacturers had to follow suit. And by doing that, the low quality became a financial impact to them. And all of a sudden, quality started to improve. You look back in the 80s when that started to occur, and you look at the quality of American automobiles today. I mean, we make some of the best cars in the world now again. But that wasn't true back in the 70s and 80s. When you're talking about patients leveling up their knowledge, what you're talking about, and I'm just clarifying here, what you're talking about is not necessarily that they're doing a deep dive into how to manage this chronic condition per se, or this acute something or other. What you're talking about is if they're told that they need surgery or potentially need surgery, their ability to select the right provider organization, you know, or physician to go to at that juncture? I think the episodic care, like you just mentioned, is probably the path that we should look to go down first because it's easy. The chronic disease state is a different ballgame. And I have some ideas around that as well. But from the, the episodic care, like orthopedic surgeries, certainly would be a fantastic place to start. The first question to ask is, is that path, that care path appropriate? It, so it's not just about where do I get that surgery done the best outcomes for the least cost, but do I need that surgery to begin with? A second opinion alone, the statistics are that when a person seeks out a second opinion before going down the recommended course of treatment, that the course of treatment is substantially altered 82% of the time as a result of that second opinion. But even more alarming than that, the diagnosis is changed 40% of the time. And we've literally seen where someone is diagnosed with cancer, about to go down a chemo and radiation path, and they get a second opinion, and it turns out it's not cancer. What amazes me is in healthcare, someone will go to a spinal surgeon, the spinal surgery will not work, and they'll go back to the same spinal surgeon for solutions. I mean, that seems just beyond ridiculous to me. Obviously, there are some cases in which it's out of the spinal surgeon's hands or purview. I'm not saying it's always their fault. But if I go in for something as major as a surgery, I'm expecting that to fix the problem, right? And if it doesn't, and I still don't get a second opinion, how many times do I have to stick my finger in a light socket before I realize <laughs> I'm going to get electrocuted every time? So let's go back to your two doors that when you're working with an employer, you offer two doors and one of them is same as it always was. And then there's a new model where or a new door where there's you had said no copays. So mm -hmm. is that offered at the plan level? In other words, the employees are given two choices right up front or is it more at the episodic level? Like if you choose to go down the street, it's going to be so much more than if you choose to go to the narrow network or maybe you could just explain a little bit more sure. what the two doors are and the difference. 
We prefer to be at the episodic level. In other words, we prefer to have every employee have a choice at each and every encounter of the healthcare system. So this is not choosing a plan and open enrollment in which for the next 12 months, you're stuck in whichever doorway you chose because things change, right? I mean, if I'm totally fine now and I say, you know, let me pick one door, but all of a sudden there's a need or a want, as it often is, to pick the other door. We don't want them to be stuck. The funny thing is our plans give employees more choice. There's no narrow network in our plans. There's no network at all in our plans because we believe that when there is a network, again, you're relinquishing the control of pricing to someone else. That's the definition of a network, unless you're directly contracting, but very few employers do that. I know one of the biggest difficulties for employers is that there's a great structure on the back end, but the employees don't know about it. How do you bridge that gap? You know, one of the things that you just also mentioned is that it's tough to educate. Most people in this country are not educated on exactly the stuff that we're talking about now. So if, mm. there's, a, if there is a knowledge gap, that could, it seems like, undermine the whole plan. Yeah. So we try to meet the employee where they are and how they want to be communicated to. So we typically do a combination of technology. I mean, I can put all this into their iPhone using artificial intelligence and give them a lot of uh, answers to those questions instantaneously in a chat bot style, all the way to a person that you call that is an advocate for them and is just going to present them data. They're not going to ever say, go here. What they're going to say is, you were going to go here and here are three other alternatives. And let me tell you why you might want to consider them from a quality perspective. Oh, and by the way, your employer will pay 100% of the cost. We usually don't even talk about cost at the employee level because for them to understand that higher quality goes along with lower cost, they're very skeptical of. So we really, in the employee communication piece, are really focusing on the quality aspect of it. So let's say it's something as uh, simple as a drug. You go, you're in the doctor's office and they say, I want to prescribe this drug for you. Well, through that's a great opportunity for something quick and easy in artificial intelligence. Type in the name of the drug. It's going to present you with some questions to ask. It's going to present you with some alternatives. And before the doctor's pen has even touched the script pad, you can ask those questions. And very often, the doctor will be just as fine steering you once you ask the right questions in a direction that results in probably lower cost with a drug. I'm, I'm assuming efficacy to be the same. But let's say it's something more complex like, you know, a knee arthroscopy and your orthopedic is saying you need uh, an MRI to start. Well, we can do the carrot or the stick approach. You know, if the employee is willing, they can do it through artificial intelligence or call a person. But strong medical management comes in as well. When medical management is, is done properly and for the benefit of the patient and the plan, as opposed to the way a lot of other of the large carriers use them, which is to the benefit of themselves and the PBMs and, and the PPOs and everything else, um, it becomes a great tool. So uh, if a doctor were to call up and pre-certify an MRI, we're going to stop that approval. We're going to immediately have an RN reach out to the patient and say, hey, your doctor was trying to do an MRI over here. That cost is 4400 of which under your plan, you're going to pay 1000 or 2000 whatever the number is. But there's one four miles away. And if you go there, it's 400 bucks. So your employee is going to pay 100% of it. And you're going to own nothing. And if you want to go there, 
just say yes, we'll call, we'll arrange for the prescription to be placed over there, and they'll be prepared for, for you to arrive. That's it. I mean, it's not hard. So we can do front side, back side, usually a combination of the two is what works best. Okay. So you said a, a number of things there. I'd like to kind of tick through them. In the first example that you gave of the drug, there's some sort of app or something like that that you are providing your employer clients, employees with, wherein you're telling them, you know, hey, when you're sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor says, do this, they can type that information into the immediately accessible chatbot and get some information, which sounds really cool, but that does require a pretty substantial behavior change on the employee's part. Do you mm. find them actually doing that? We do because we put financial incentives in place to do it. I mean, interestingly enough, when I started to go down this path, I thought that the white collar firms were going to be the first to embrace it because, again, they're better educated, they're smarter. I can show them how incredibly dysfunctional this is. I was so wrong. It's the blue collar firms. It's the lower paid workforces, which lucky for me is a much larger market segment than the, the higher paid people. But for them, $10 or $20 in a copay every month or on two or three different drugs, if I can eliminate that for them by making a call or going to an app on their phone, they're much more likely to do that. And they do do that. So we find the lower paid workforces have much higher adoption and uptick. So there's a session, an education session at the beginning of the open enrollment, and all the employees get a packet and a conversation about here's the app that you use. Yeah, we go even a step further. We don't believe in wellness programs, at least for the purpose of reducing costs. They're great to have if you're a good employer. They're great to have to offer to your employees but they don't reduce costs. As a matter of fact, they increase costs. And so let's say that an employer had a wellness program that they, if the employee did certain things, they had less money coming out of their paycheck for that, for their health insurance. We'll get rid of that. And we'll take that same structure and tie it to them doing very specific activities that we want them to do in order to make sure that that information is accessible and that we can engage with them through that platform. So one of the things we might say is, hey, if you want to keep that $25 less a paycheck coming out of your paycheck, forget the sticking of the fingers, forget the wearing the Fitbits for a minute. Instead, you have to download this app and log in because that little step of downloading the app and logging in does a few things. It makes it accessible to them instantaneously. I mean, imagine if now your doctor asks and you even remember that you're supposed to do this and now you have to download the app in the doctor's office and create a password and that's never going to happen. We want that all done in advance. But the other thing that we can do is we can push notifications to them. So when you're in a proper plan with a proper TPA, information is easy to get. And so we can actually have, when a drug gets filled, we can then, again, if we need to on certain drugs, stop the claim and instantaneously have something pop up on the member's phone saying why. Not them getting a no from the pharmacist, being all pissed off and then having to figure out why they got a no. We want to be more proactive or, or at least have quicker reaction than that. That information is, is key and, and this notion that employers don't have the right to get that information is complete bogus. That's not what HIPAA says. As a matter of fact, HIPAA says the exact opposite. It says that the payer has an absolute right to this information and they don't need to see it. We're going to control the flow of it for them, but it's really 
making it as proactive as possible and putting an engagement platform in place that allows the employee to proactively do it or us to reactively do it or both. So I want to go back to what you had said about medical management. And the example that you gave was an MRI that doctor calls in a pre-cert and boom, you guys pop up and a medical manager will call the patient. And another example which you gave was a drug gets prescribed, you know, kind of same idea. There's uh, information that surfaces or a person that surfaces at that time. So you've got a team, obviously, of case managers, maybe might be something to call them, nurse case Mm -hmm. managers. Mm -hmm. And they are skilled not only in what the clinical evidence-based medicine is, Mm -hmm. which, as we all know, is not always practiced in this country, you know, very dependent upon where you go. But they also are knowledgeable about the costs in the area Mm -hmm. um, and are able to direct patients to the right facilities. If you were going to give it some advice to a health system, because obviously if you've got case managers who are popping up telling people that there's an MRI down the street that's, you know, a tenth of the price, that is what is called in health system parlance network leakage. If this becomes pervasive, then a large component of a health system's current business and marketing model, let's just say, is much less effective. What advice do you have for a health system at this juncture? <laughs> Take the lead and change because, you know, you're going to have your lunch eaten. And I know that sounds as though I have a lot of chutzpah saying that. But I mean, I think the economics are just such that it's not it's just simply not sustainable. And one of the reasons I think that the crack in the dam has occurred is that I have several meetings over the next few months with health systems, some of them large health systems that want to be part of door number two, even though I don't feel that I have the scale yet at all for the demand to be there. But these are a couple of the innovative health systems that are saying, we see the writing on the wall. And any healthcare administrator uh, listening to this I will tell you that you're committing suicide by a thousand cuts and your choice is take the lead in this, you know, new paradigm. And it doesn't have to be mine. I'm not saying mine is the right way or the only way, but there needs to be a new path forward and it needs to be patient focused, patient centered. And we need to find a way. I want hospitals to make money. I just want them to do it in a way that means that they're providing great outcomes and great value for what they provide. And so, so we want that leakage. That's, that's the only way to get them to change. Nothing speaks louder to a business of any kind than customers not lining up to purchase their product or service. And unfortunately, as much as we want to think that the hospitals are doing the right thing, the evidence is clear that profit is their primary motivating factor. And so we need to make that painful for them when they do the wrong thing. And same exercise with payers. Sorry. (laughs) Carriers. Yes. You know, that that is going to adjust to the market as the market adjusts. The the notion that a carrier is going to lower costs for us is just insane. I mean, if it's if for no other reason, just look at the last 20 years. If you really understand how insurance works, their financial incentives don't align with lower costs. So again, you know, my method has been, well, if the carriers won't let me create these two doors, which they won't then I'll just create it outside the carrier. You don't need the carrier to do this. You don't, there are only three entities that I care about with my clients. There's the payer, which is the company, the employer. There's the patient, which is the employee. And there's the provider, which is the doctor. Everything else is just noise. 
And we want to eliminate that noise as much as possible. And for the noise that we have to keep just to interact with the system or to function with the system, we want to change their payment methodologies in a way that aligns with the employer and the employee. And so the hardest challenge I have when talking about this is everyone tries to overcomplicate my solution and they struggle to grasp its simplicity. How do you factor pharmaceutical pricing into this, which can decimate, you know, you get one patient literally with some rare disease and you blew your budget? Yeah. I mean, we have multiple ways to attack high cost drugs. We have no problem sourcing drugs internationally in a safe and ethical way and a legal way by the way. We also have no problem incentivizing or encouraging employees to go overseas. I helped a broker in another part of the country who had hemophiliac twins on their plan, a 450-employee company. The company was spending a total of $4 million in healthcare spend, not including the twins. And the twins' medications were 135000 a month just for that, their, their medications. And what we're able to do is once a quarter, the twins fly out to the Cayman Islands. There's an amazing hospital there called Health City Cayman Island. It's actually fully U.S. accredited. It's a joint venture between a U.S. hospital and an Indian hospital has some of the best quality outcomes possible. And four times a year, the twins fly out. They get one infusion of their medication there. They're sent home with a cold pack with the remainder two and a half months of the medication. And we have a nurse now, an infusion therapist, go to their house and do the infusion in their house, which is so much less traumatic for the children. The parents said that alone was worth the whole exercise, was being able to get this done at home instead of in the hospital. And then they go back two and a half months later for another three month supply. The total cost of this, instead of 135,000 a month, is $50,000 a quarter. So for those of you in the self-insured space, you just went from a laser of a million plus to perhaps not even a spec hit. That's miraculous. Yeah, I interviewed Dr. Robert Pearl several Mm -hmm. weeks ago, Alex Akers and I, and um, he said that there are Indian physicians who are building heart centers in the Cayman Islands as well for drastically lower prices and some results, uh, outcomes, which are very comparable in many cases better than what's possible in this country. So where can people, David, go if they're interested in talking with you further? Where would you direct them? LinkedIn, just my name, David Contorno. But for employers that are willing to say, listen, I'm done with this and I'm willing to look for answers outside of my traditional broker or traditional carrier, um, that doesn't mean changing the relationship with the patient's doctor. It doesn't mean not giving them an ID card. It means caring about the cost and quality of the care that your employees consume and putting proper tools and incentives in place to make that as likely as possible. It's not that hard. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, David. Thanks, Stacy. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.